Numbers chapter 32 is where we pick things up tonight, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. The children of Israel at this time are camped on the plains of Moab immediately uh, across the Jordan River on the east side of the Jordan River in what is modern day Jordan, uh, opposite the city of Jericho, which will be the first city that uh, they will conquer as a part of their conquest of the land. And they're just uh, not, a very, not very far uh, time-wise away from doing that. We look at it and say, well, there's the book of Numbers and then there's the book of Deuteronomy. And, you know, then we get to Joshua, the conquest of the land. The book of Deuteronomy covers a period of just 30 days. So they're, they're right there. I mean, they've been 40 years since they've come out of Egypt. Now they're right on the cusp of doing this great thing that God has called them to do despite all of the hindrances and and so this is uh, right where they uh, find themselves staged and so then at this particular point in time the children of Reuben the tribe of Reuben and the children of Gad the tribe of Reu- uh, of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock so they got a lot of animals And when they saw that the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that's the land that they're in right now, outside of the promised land, uh, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, well, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and they spoke to Moses, also to Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation. And here's what they're saying. Uh, Ataroth, uh, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, uh, Eliela, uh, Shebam, Nebo, and Beon, the country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And so this land that the twelve tribes uh, together have conquered of Og of Bashan and, and these different uh, smaller kingdoms that they've defeated, this is the land that they're talking about right outside the promised land. This land they looked at it and said, we know good grazing land, we know livestock land, and this is livestock land. And it, re- and it really is. Therefore, here's our request, they said, If we have found favor in your sight, number one, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. This is the land that we want. And then number two, do not take us over the Jordan. And so the land here appeals to them. In other words, don't take us over the Jordan River into the conquest of what is the true promised land. Now, the reason that this land appealed to them is because they had a lot of livestock. And uh, they recognized this is great land for raising uh, livestock. And so that's the land that they were in and, uh, and camped in. And the problem with it is, is that it was near the promised land where God had called them to uh, go in and conquer, but it wasn't the promised land. And God hadn't gone through all of the trouble that He had gone through to get them out of Egypt, and then 40 years of His faithfulness and provision in their lives, God didn't do all those things so that they would camp right on the doorstep of the promised land. He did all of those things so they would possess the promised land. So uh, there's a problem here. Now remember what all of the imagery of what this represents for us as Christians. The promised land 
This promised land of Canaan does not represent heaven to us as Christians because there's going to be fighting in the conquest of, uh, of the promised land. In the book of Joshua, we're not going to have any fighting going on in heaven. What this represents is, is that God has given us a book full of promises, a book full of a description of what God has provided for us in Christ Jesus. That's our land. It's a spiritual land. It's a rich land. It's a God-given land. And that's what Jesus died on the cross f to provide for us. He didn't die on the cross in order that we would have all of that just sitting there and that we would then camp right outside of those promises. I mean, that's a life that's unworthy of what God had done for them, unworthy of what God has done for us. So what this represents for us is the promised land is entering into the fullness of the Christian life. To go in and take and say, I want to claim every one of these promises. I want to know them one by one. I want to claim them one by one. I want every square inch of the spiritual territory that Christ shed His blood for me to have. And I want every bit of that. And that's what, it, that's what it's supposed to represent to us. And here you have a group of people who are looking and saying, in effect, that there, as they look at it, they think there is nothing that could be in the promised land. There's nothing in the land of milk and honey, nothing in the land of Canaan that can compare to what we are seeing right now immediately outside uh, of, of the land. So they, they want to settle in Jordan instead of Israel. The problem is, is that close isn't good enough. There are plans that God has attached with the nation of Israel. He's going to provide the world with the scriptures that we hold on our laps tonight through the Jewish people. He's going to provide the entire world, including you and I who are saved tonight, with a salvation, with a Savior that's going to provide us with the forgiveness of our sins. And Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem, Israel, not in Amman, Jordan. There's a big difference between where they want to settle and where God wants these people to settle as a group of 12, 12 tribes. Everybody's supposed to settle in that promised land. Now, why that land appealed to them, number one, they, they tell us there in, in verse uh, 5, first of all, is already conquered land. It's already conquered land. The 12 tribes came together. The 12 of them conquered that land. So there's not going to be any blood, no sweat, no tears for them in order to have that land. It's already uh, under their uh, control and so we want to have this because it doesn't require anything hard of us now to to gain this uh, and and so that was one of the reasons that it was uh, uh, appealing to them and number two as as we've seen it was a land that was perfect for raising livestock and they had a lot of livestock so their thinking is Again, there isn't any way that we could ever see. I mean, look at what we've got. We've got all these cows. And we've got a land that's great for cows. And I mean, this is so good and is so prosperous. And we've got so many cows. And this land is so good for cows. We're going to come to the conclusion on our own that there is nothing. It's impossible for there to be something 
in the promised land, something in a full-on obedient walk with God that could be better than what we can get without a battle out here, without any kind of spiritual warfare, any hardship, no sweat, no blood, no, no difficulty, anything like that. So rather than have God lead us in our lives, we're going to take our life under our own control, and we want to determine where we're going to settle. We want to walk by sight and not walk by faith. And this is just, they want this, to them it's just this right balance of God, a little bit of God, a little bit of the world. It's pretty close to what God wants for our lives, but it's, and it's all that we really want. So they're going to determine uh, how close they walk with God and how obedient they're going to, going to be with God. The problem is is that they are wanting to settle outside of the land promised to Abraham. And why do they do it? Same reason many, many Christians abandon God's will for their lives, abandon God's plan for their lives today. For the sake of ease, I don't want to fight any more battles. For the sake of prosperity, I think I can make more money right here. And to go in there and obey God on the level that God wants me to obey Him, I don't know that I can prosper better. Then, then this little thing I've just kind of worked out, it's pretty close. It's pretty close to what God demands of a Christian. And, and maybe he'll, maybe he'll accept, accept that. Uh, so that I know what I've got right now, and, and I don't want to risk it for, for going full on for God because it might cost me some of these material things in order to do that. So I'll settle down here spiritually for the rest of my life, and I'll stop living, living by faith. <laughs> They're elevating their own self-will and their own self-interest. Number one, above the interests of the nation. Number two, above the will and the purposes of God for the whole nation, for the whole world. And so cattle, love of money, ease, it's going to keep them on the wrong side of the Jordan. That's what they want. This on my terms, it's all about me, it's all about how easy it is, and God and the promised land, and possessing the Christian life, that's, you know, let somebody else do that. Forget about what God wants to do through me in this world. Now imagine elevating livestock above the will and the purpose of God for a person's life. And yet it's a real temptation. It's a great, great temptation, even today. But I think that the way it manifests itself today is where a person takes and says, listen, I love ease, I've paid my dues, I've been in the wilderness, fought a couple little battles out here, I know I didn't get to the promised land, I know I didn't walk full on for God, I know I didn't fulfill God's purpose for my life, but I did a little bit, and right now what I'm into is ease, and I'm into comfort, I'm into material prosperity, and it moves us away from walking by faith. And going wherever God wants to send us and doing whatever God wants us to do. I have to let that search my own heart. I've walked with the Lord since 1980. And it's got an ebb and flow of things where there's the constant opportunity to look and to fashion my own Christianity with God. And the constant temptation to say, I'm going to move away from faith. I know how to do something where it's just comfortable, it's pretty close to what God wants to do, I know how to, it can prosper and this kind of thing, but I don't want to walk by faith anymore. But it's no kind of life. 
So the importance for us to walk by faith. Fulfill God's calling upon our lives, whatever that is and whatever role that it is, however and however much it might cost us. So they bring, they bring the request there to the leaders. And again, as we saw in verse 5, and this is very important to, to recognize, they got two reasons. Number one, we want this land over here. And number two, they request, do not take us over the Jordan. Now Moses, Moses doesn't know what to think about this. Put yourself in Moses' shoe. He would give anything to go into the promised land and can't. And he's got two tribes coming to him who can and they won't. And that doesn't sit real well with him. And he's going to let them know about it. He says to them, first of all, in verse 6, he said to the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now, when I was growing up as a kid, they used to talk about what was known as the Protestant work ethic. How many of you remember it? And that was a person that I, who I assume they, they got their convictions about how hard to work and, and, and all from the Bible and understanding of the Bible. And Moses looks at this and says, listen, so let me understand this. We're all supposed to go in and conquer the land while you sit over here on your behinds and just have it however you want to have it. Is that, is that how this thing works? And so his immediate reaction so strong that, I mean, he just doesn't get the thing at all. You're going to sit here, and I like it. <laughs> Your brethren, we're going to go to war, and you're going to sit here? Hmm? I remember when, and I think it's a good word for my own heart. I remember when, you get, I, I have a lot of faults. I'm not going to tell them to you. I'll let you discover them on your own one by one. I'm going to make it easy for you. But laziness is not one of them. And being a slacker is not one of them. And I remember when I first walked into Calvary Chapel of Napa in, uh, back in 1980. And I walk in there and the guy's teaching that Bible. And I got these worship teams. And people are just going and doing all these different things and everything. And every time I walk in, you know, they've got the air conditioner on. They've got the heater on, depending on what's needed there. Everything's all vacuumed and clean and it's place and all that stuff. After about four weeks of that, six weeks of that, I, I, I thought to myself, somebody's doing all this for me. And so I said, I, I, can't, I can't be receiving all this stuff and, and not be a part of this. I said, what does a person have to do to start to serve and do something around here? And, and I went to one of the deacons, and they'll tell you, deacons will tell you. Elders, they're nice. Well, you know, uh, spiritually speaking, the, uh, you know, here's a verse, a deacon will tell you. So they told me. They say, you come a half hour early before any service and be willing to stay uh, 45 minutes late, and we got plenty for you to do. And they had plenty for me to do. But it was that whole thing of, I thought to myself, I'm not going to come to this church, I'm not going to go to any environment where someone else is doing all of the work, and then I'm not going to chip in and be a part of what's, what's happening there. And, and, uh, and, and the importance of that. 
that kind of, of an attitude. Is you're going to all go together, forward together in, in a battle, in a, in a war uh, uh, together. And, and it's, it's good for us. And so this is, what, this is what he says. Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here idly? And I, I couldn't do it. And I, I'm not saying you need to do, go see a deacon after the service unless you're doing nothing. Every, we all have a place in the battle. Every one of us. Now, you may be a mom and you've got three kids at home and, and all this, and that's, that's your ministry right now. That's all you can do. I'm not telling you to grab a vacuum after the service or do anything. But, the, see, the point is, is that God had called them to do something. And what God has called us to do, that we need to do that. One of the things I never want to do, I couldn't live with myself in the same vein. I look at... 1980, and I heard the gospel long before 1980, and I was raised for part of my childhood in church. So I knew the truth of the Bible, and I knew the Bible was the right way. I just didn't want to walk it for a little while. And, uh, but I, I look at the, where things are, and I figure, how many people did how much in history? How many people, we talked about this morning, how many men and women died at the stake for me to hear a pure gospel, for me to hear a true gospel, in order to put my faith in the Christ of that gospel. How many people did this thing and that thing that I am the beneficiary of in the same way that these folks are? So many people, you know, worked hard and, and labored and sacrificed for them to have that little piece of things right there. And they wanted to possess what other people had worked in, but they didn't want to take their responsibility when it came time to step up. And I, and I just look at things and say, i got one little window in human history here. There's no reincarnation. It's appointed unto men once to die, and then comes the judgment. I got one life. I got one generation, one block of time, just like you do in human history. And the only way I can live with myself is to step up and say, I did what I was supposed to do in my little place in human history. And in my generation, as much as I could uh, have an influence on it, we didn't drop the ball there. And they want to drop the ball here. And so we have a responsibility for the generations that will follow us if the Lord tarries in order to pass on something to them that they will then look at and say, wow, a lot of people gave up a lot so that we could have this today. Now it's my turn to step up. And if, if ever a church or the body of Christ as a whole loses that, then you've got nothing to offer the next generation. We're just going to all be spoiled brats and wine and everything will just dissolve. So, so Moses, he didn't like this and he really put, put his finger on uh, one of the problems with this kind of an attitude that they had. And, and, and he uses the word brethren there, shall your brethren. In other words, he says, listen you guys, you're not just anybody in the world. You're not just two tribes of anybody in the world. You're part of a family. And if you guys just go traipsing off and you back off at this point in time from doing what God is calling us to do, don't you get it? You're going to influence the whole family. You're an influence whether you like it or not. You're, but you're going to influence everyone. You're, you're not just an independent person, it, 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 not a part of something larger. You're a part of a family. And so here he reminds them of that. You do this thing and you're going to spread this influence through 
the entire group of, of God's people. And then second, he, he addresses his, his uh, next problem in verse 7. He said, now why will you discourage? That's his concern. What you guys are saying is, is, is not only not carrying your weight, but the second thing is you're going to discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them. And what Moses has got to have rolling through his mind, because he's going to talk about it in just a second here, is he's thinking to himself. He's already been through this. He's thinking to himself, wait a second, guys. If 10 out of 12 spies were able to discourage and undermine the faith of 2 to 3 million people from entering uh, into the promised land at Kadesh Barnea. What in the world is going to happen when two out of twelve tribes step up and say, we don't want to go in because we don't want to fight that battle? And what Moses is just like having a flashback in his mind, and he's back at Kadesh Barnea. They're right here at the doorstep. They're right about to head into the promised land. And he just looks and says, oh no, God, do I, do I have another 40 years to wander with this generation if they falter at this point? So he's just alarmed every way that you can be alarmed. And he said, thus your fathers, verse 8, did when I sent them away, from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshkol and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. Do you encourage faith in God's people? You discourage them. You know, I was thinking about God's put it on my heart to do, oh boy, I'll tell you, this is the first, and then this will be the second, and then here, and you're right, boy, that's it. I'm, you, I'm glad I talked with you ahead of time. The gospel won't move forward an inch in the whole world with people like that. So this, this report, you know, evil report that they brought, it discouraged people. And so the Lord's anger was aroused on that day. And he swore an oath saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and above shall see the promised land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they've not wholly followed me. Says, Gentlemen, you remember this? Except Caleb, the son of Jephthah, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And so the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel, and, they, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men, Boy, what a bedside manner he has. There's a time for clarity, though. He said, here you are, a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord of Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave this whole group of people in the wilderness and destroy, and you will be responsible for the destruction of all these people this next generation. So he just looks at it and says, here we go again. He rebukes them. They respond in verse 16. Then, we don't know how long went by, but they regrouped on their offer. They came near to him and said, Okay, here's what we're offering. We will build sheepfolds here for our livestock on the, on, on the east side of the Jordan River and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them into their place. We will join them in the conquest. Now, 
Don't look at this and say, oh, Moses misunderstood them. Don't look at this and say, well, Moses, they got half their story out of, out of their mouth. Moses jumped the gun and misjudged their heart. They had no intention of going in to take the land. And when Moses came across so strong in the Lord, they backed off and they came back with a different offer. And now they are abandoning their one request of not going into the land. They didn't want to go over the Jordan, verse 5 tells us. And so here, here they, they say, listen, we want to just let us build cities. We're going to be conquering the land for a while, someplace secure for our, our women and children and our flocks to be. And then not only will we go armed, verse 17, into the promised land with our brethren, but we'll go before the children of Israel. We'll go ahead and lead until we have brought them into to their place and our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land we will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance for we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan we want to do with someone like that is just say Come here, come here, come here. Get out of here. What are they talking about? What are they talking about, verse 19? Our inheritance has fallen on the other side of the Jordan. That's not their inheritance. Their inheritance is Canaan. And yet it's so goofy. And again, I exhort myself because I would never dream of exhorting you. But I exhort, that's a joke, by the way, it's very dry humor, it's very, very dry. But this thing where we can take and get a plan B, get out of the perfect will of God, move into what is best, the permissive will of God, and then convince ourselves that it was God's plan all along. That's what they're doing. Because our inheritance has fallen to us on this side of the Jordan River. Says who? Says they. God didn't say. Then Moses said to them, If you do this thing, your second offer, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all your armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him and the land is subdued before the Lord then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel and this land shall be your possession before the Lord but it comes with a warning but if you do not do so what you've told me you're going to do here then take note you have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Now that's a saying that's kind of gone by the wayside, but in the olden days, at least when I was growing up, that was a common saying. People would say, be sure, be, be sure you know that your sin will find you out. Not people that didn't even know the Bible or read the Bible. It's just a part of the culture. Here's what Moses is saying. Moses, Moses knows he's going to be dead before they go in and conquer that land. So he's saying... I won't be here to see it. I won't be here to assure that you keep the promise that you're, you're giving here. But God will be alive to see it or not see it. And if you don't do it, he knows how to deal with that, that kind of uh, uh, lack of integrity and that kind of sin. So he's committing them 
to the Lord here and, and putting the fear of God in them. Build cities for your little ones and folds for your sheep and do what is, has proceeded out of your mouth. And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses saying, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. For our little ones, our wives, our flocks, all our livestock will be here in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will cross over every man armed for war before the Lord to battle, just as my Lord uh, says. And so they agree to that. Now here's a problem. Here's a problem with the, the, the permissive will uh, over the perfect will of God. So they say, all right, we don't want to go in to, take, to, to conquer the promised land. We want to live where we want to live. And uh, we want to live, again, close to the things of God. But we want, you know, we like what the world has to offer, too. We like it an awful lot. So, in fact, we'd like to camp over on that side and be close to the things of God rather than camp in the perfect will of God, be close to the things of the world. Now, that's a bad condition, too, but it's not as bad as what they're looking to do. And here's the problem with that. The nation of Israel that God wanted to bring them into, it had natural boundaries and, and, and it had, or it had natural uh, kind of resources and terrain around its north, its, its south, its east, and its west that made it kind of a self-contained piece of, of land. It had a desert in the south, it had the Golan Heights up in the north, it had the Mediterranean Sea on the west, had the Jordan River on, on the east. And there they are camping themselves outside of those natural barriers against future attack by their enemies. It's like having this gigantic fort in the middle of a war, have this gigantic fort that's just sitting there, huge walls and everything, safety inside. They say, we'll just camp outside the walls. You say, you're crazy. Well, you'll get moited out there. So, but that's what they do. And the problem is, is that later on in their history, when the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, and later the southern kingdom of Judah conquered by the Babylonians, the first tribes to go into captivity the tribe of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh because they were outside of the perfect will and plan of God in his permissive will. So it looks like, yeah, they got away with something and, and it was a good thing, but the only safe place in life is to just be full-on where in obedience to God's word and right where he wants us to be in terms of our, our personal lives. And so Moses gave the command, verse 20, 28, uh, concerning them to Eleazar the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said to them, if the children of Gad, so he now informs the Israel's leadership of, of this whole plan, if the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have, uh, but if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. And then the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. The Lord didn't say it, you numbskulls. But anyway, this is. We will cross over, armed before the Lord, into the land of Canaan, but the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us on this side of the Jordan. 
And so Moses gave the children uh, to the children of Gad, to the children of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, uh, the son of Joseph. So you've got Reuben and Gad, two of the tribes. Somehow... Um, Half of the tribe of Manasseh, they kind of hear about what's going on here, and they want to glom onto the same plan. They, they've got livestock. They want to stay on the east side of the Jordan. The other half says, no way, we're going in to conquer the land. So the first kind of appearance of half of, of one of the tribes of Israel, half the tribe of Manasseh comes on the scene. And uh, so this to be given to these two and a half tribes was the kingdom of Sihon, the king of the Amorites and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the city of the land with its cities within the borders, the cities of the surrounding country. And then specifically what was to be given to the children of Gad. And the children of Gad built uh, Dibon and Adaroth and Aror. Uh, okay, I won't put you through that. So what, what was that dog that did that? Huh? Don't be embarrassed. What is it? Huh? Yeah, Astro's that one. But what's the other one? Scooby-Doo. There we go. All right. Listen, don't, don't, don't let anyone ever tell you you aren't the sharpest congregation in the whole. I need any reference to pop culture, and it's right there within 15 minutes. I couldn't find it at all. But anyway, let's continue and see what happens as we try to pronounce other names here in the, the account. Uh, Atroth and Shofan and Jazer, uh, Jogbeha, uh, Beth uh, Nimrah and Beth Haran, fortified cities and folds for sheep. And so these were the cities that were uh, given to, to them, already conquered land. And then the cities that were to be given to the children of Reuben, they built uh, Heshbon, uh, Elielah, and uh, Kir uh, Jeth Aim, uh, Nebo, Baal, Mion, their names being changed, and uh, uh, Shibma, and they gave other names to the cities which they built. And so those were the cities that were given to them. And then the cities that, and land that were given to the children of uh, Manasseh. They went to Gilead and they took it and they dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. So Moses gave Gilead to Machir, the son of Manasseh, and he dwelt in it. Also Jair, the son of Manasseh, went and took its small towns and called them uh, Havoth Jair. And then uh, Nobah went and took uh, Kenneth and its villages and he called it uh, Nobah after its own name. And so apparently... Uh, Gad and Reuben, they had the responsibility of, or, or they just took control of land that had already been conquered. Apparently Manasseh comes a little bit late to the game, half the tribe, and so they, were, they had to conquer the land that was going to become their part of, uh, of the, um, uh, on the east side of, of the Jordan. Uh, river there. Uh, uh, chapter 33. These are the journeys of the children of Israel who went out of the land of Egypt by their armies under the hand of Moses and Aaron. And now Moses wrote down the starting points of their journeys at the command of the Lord, and these are their journeys according to their starting points. So what Moses does is he wrote down a complete 
log of all of the cities that they had uh, gone to from the time that they left Egypt through the 40 years of their wandering to the time that they were now in position on the plains of Moab to enter into the, the promised land. Now, some uh, critics, and there's always critics of the Bible, and they look and say, well, how in the world could Moses be, have written the Pentateuch? You know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I mean, he's just a shepherd and all these kinds of things. And how could, he didn't know how to write and all. He's raised in Egypt. He was raised to be the next pharaoh in Egypt. And here we have even the record here where he was keeping a log of, of all these things. At least we're told the cities here uh, on, on things. And so this is what uh, he was uh, uh, taking and making a record of. And then at the beginning in verse 3, he starts to lay out the different cities that they went to. Now, this is a historical record that he gives here. And historical chapters in the Bible are important because they make us realize, we understand this is God's word, we understand that it's supernatural, we understand that it has uh, type and imagery that's involved in it, in, in addition to the obvious plain meaning of the words and different things, but it's also a history book. And so this, this just reaffirms in people, these events happened. This was a part of human history with the children of, of Israel. The other thing that it does as he lists all of these different cities, uh, it is a reminder to the children of Israel and a reminder to us that he knew about every single stop they made during the 40 years of their wandering. He didn't miss a single city that they stopped in. You ever have a place in your, your, your Christian life and you say, God, do you even know where I am? Yeah, I, I do. I do. I could write the city down for you right now. And he, he, know, he knew exactly where they were every step of the way. Now, the interesting thing about these cities, and uh, you may say it's very hard to make something interesting about these cities, but there is something, a couple of things very interesting about them. And one is, is a lot of the cities we don't know where they're located today. It's impossible. They were cities that were in existence in those days, but they've been long lost to the sands of the uh, Judean wilderness and Sinai Peninsula and all that area down uh, down there, and, and so they're, they're long gone. But a lot of the cities continue to, uh, are identifiable today, but it's impossible to sit on the base of these cities and determine an exact line of their journeys during the, the wilderness wandering. He lists 42 cities here, and uh, why he lists the cities that he does, probably it, the, these were the cities that God, remember, we talk about, um, we talk about the children of Israel wandering in the wilderness. And so we sometimes have in our mind that as God is waiting for that, that generation to die out in the wilderness, that they just get up in the morning, put their sandals on, and they head out for another day and just wandering in the wilderness. You have to be careful of that because they were being led through the wilderness by a pillar of cloud, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And probably these cities are listings of cities where the pillar of God stopped at a particular place and had them stay for at least enough time that they had to set up the tabernacle and the whole system of worship and then take it back down in order to leave. So he mentions they departed from 
uh, Ramses uh, in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover. Remember that Passover that was a part of uh, being uh, uh, the, the judgment of the final plague upon uh, Egypt, the, the death of the firstborn, that first Passover that took place in Egypt. Uh, the children of Israel went out after that Passover with boldness in the sight of the Egyptians. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had killed among them. Also on their gods the Lord had executed judgments. And so this city is uh, probably a city that was in the kind of delta region of um, uh, of Egypt and it was their departure point uh, out, of, uh, out of Egypt that was the place that they left uh, following that Passover and then the children uh, of Israel moved from uh, Ramses and uh, camped at Sokoth and they departed from Sokoth and they camped at uh, Etham which is on the edge of the wilderness they moved from Etham and turned back to pi hay which is east of baal Zephon, and they uh, camped near Migdal. And they departed from before uh, Ha-Hay-Roth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness and went three days' journey uh, in the wilderness of Etham. And so here we have a record of the crossing of the Red Sea. And you notice they passed through the midst of the sea. They didn't wade knee-deep through a marsh of the Reed Sea. So here we have a record of God knows what city they left when they crossed the, the Red Sea, what city they went into immediately following that, and they camped, we're told, at the end of verse uh, 8 at Mara. And you remember that's where they went, and the water was bitter there. And uh, so God instructed Moses to throw a the tree, not a tree, the tree that he had pointed out into the water. It sweetened the water, and they were able to... Uh, have fresh water to drink. And they moved from Mara and they came to uh, Elim. And at Elim were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. And so they camped there. Now out in that wilderness, we've got uh, 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. Let's not leave here. I mean, that was a pretty good uh, place. And all that's recorded for us in Exodus chapter 15. And they moved from there and they camped by the Red Sea. And they moved from the Red Sea and they camped in the wilderness of sin. Now, is there anything, any greater? Um, it's, just a, a, it's just a territory and in a, uh, a larger territory. But sin is a wilderness. It's just so aptly named, the wilderness of, of sin. So that was where, in the wilderness of sin, that God began to supply for them with manna. And so manna began to fall each day for them to eat. And they journeyed from the wilderness of sin, and they camped at uh, Dovka, and they departed from Dovka and camped at Alush. And they moved from Alush and camped at uh, Rephidim. And uh, Rephidim is where the Lord provided water out of the rock for the very first time as Moses smote the rock and the, and the water uh, came forward. So an interesting thing about that, uh, one of the interesting things is here they come to this place and there's no water. Moses, there's no water and we're dying of thirst and everything. So Moses, he smites the rock under God's instruction and the water comes forth and they were uh, blessed with all of that water. And, and you look and, and, here, and they're in Rephidim and they could be looking and say, we left uh, 
Elim, for this we had all of these 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees and he takes us out here to Rephidim. I mean, what is God thinking here? What, how, how could he take us from one thing that's wor- you know, very, very good into something that is obviously physically worse? So they're stretched and they're upset about and all uptight about everything. The thing of it is, is that if you stay in Elim, where the springs are, and where all of the palm trees are, and God never moves us away from that, then we will never experience water from a rock. So if you and I want to experience the miraculous in our Christian lives and see God do what is humanly impossible as he leads us, it means that he's going to have to put us in humanly impossible situations. So I have a choice. I... I, I'm either, I'm either going to experience verse 9 here and not know anything supernatural in my Christian life, or I'm going to have to walk by faith in verse 14, and it can be pretty tough on the flesh, but the supernatural life is lived there. And it's, just the way, it's just the way that it is. So they camped there where there was no water for the people to drink, and they departed from there, and they camped in the wilderness of Sinai where Moses received uh, the law from God. And then they moved from the wilderness of Sinai, and they camped at Kibroth Hatava, which you might remember it was entitled, it, the name means Graves of Lust. We're sick of this manna. We don't want any more manna. We want meat. So you've got the insurrection going on. God says, all right, I'll give you meat. Quail come in, you'll have more quail, and you know what to do with it. So they got the quail, and they ate it, and before they could even chew it adequately, between their molars, God sent a plague on them and, and uh, wiped that group out. And so it was the, graves of, uh, the grave of lust. And, and so all of that recorded in Numbers chapter 11. And then he goes through a lot of names that we don't really, can't really tie biblical events to down to verse 36. And they moved from uh, Ezion Geber and they camped in the wilderness of Zin, which is Kadesh or Kadesh. And so this is where Moses' uh, sister Miriam died. And they moved from Kadesh and uh, camped at Mount Hor on the boundary of the land of Edom. And so here they come, Numbers chapter 20, they're moving toward their staging area, coming by the land of Edom. And and they were uh, attacked there. And then Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. On the first day of the fifth month, Aaron was 123 years old when he died at Mount Hor. And this is included in the passage because this passage allows all kinds of dating to go on. It's put in the, in the chronology for the purpose of being able to date these events and date uh, Aaron's age and thus Moses' age and a lot, of, a lot of things. Moses knew what he was doing when he put that in there. It allows a lot of things to make sense in trying to understand kind of the chronology of things. Now the king, verse 40, uh, of uh, Arad, the Canaanite who dwelt in the south, uh, in the land of Canaan, he heard of the coming of the children of Israel. And so this speaks, Numbers chapter 21, of 
when this Canaanite king attacked the children of Israel and and God uh, defeated them as a result of it. Down into verse 49. And they camped by the Jordan uh, from Beth uh, Jesimoth as far as uh, Abel Acacia Grove in the plains of Moab. And so this is their current uh, encampment, uh, you know, while Moses is is writing uh, all of this. Now one of the things that's fascinating in verse 49 is he, he, label, he labels these two camps, uh, two cities, uh, Beth, Jesimoth, and Abel, Acacia Grove, and there's a, a distance of six miles between these, these two cities. And between those two cities, that's where the children of Israel were, were encamped. So remember, two to three million people camp there. This is a gigantic camping trip. So in honor, Fourth of July weekend and all the camping that's going on, we make mention of that. But you, you get an idea. I mean, where you just look six miles out, tents in all directions. I mean, amazing what the room that it took for them. No wonder why everybody in uh, Jericho is they're coming, they're coming. And they just look across and see this huge number of people that, uh, that they're not only coming numerically strong, but they've got this incredible history of, of God's power and showing himself strong on, uh, on their behalf. And, and so uh, the, uh, the listing of all of, of, of this. And so the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when, that's a nice word, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan. So this is a when? Okay, it's going to happen. This is an absolute when God says when, when is when, right? I like it when God talks about when I'm going to be in heaven. That's a sure thing. It's going to happen. So he says, when you have crossed the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So get rid of all the evil people that are there and uh, you shall destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images and demolish all of their high places. And so uh, Moses is, is given the instruction that what he's supposed to do with the people and then what he is supposed to do uh, with uh, all of the articles of worship that they used in the worship of all of their false gods. And so it's a warning, get rid of the evil people that are in the land, and then don't even, don't even leave a hint of the junk that they worship. Because if you think there isn't something attractive to the flesh about what they worship, then you'll find out there is. And the only safety is to destroy it, so there is nothing that you could piece back together to figure it out later. And, and so that's, that's the level of, of the destruction that, that he, he calls for. Not to allow any of it to survive. The land was to be a clean land. It was to be a pure land. And so the word, of course, for us related to this, God calls us as Christians to make sure that we're careful about our personal relationships 
careful that we are not willingly associating and coming under the influence of evil people or coming under the influence of or allowing evil things into our lives. He's going to talk about how it's going to have the potential of tripping them up in, in just a moment. Get rid of all that junk. Get rid of, quit hanging around with those kinds of people. It's going to be nothing but trouble for you. Now, their possession of the land, so they're going to go in, they're going to conquer the promised land, and they are going to dispossess a people to do that. Now, that's not really politically correct today uh, in, in a lot of people's minds. So, so how could God take and push one group of people out and then, and then bring another group in? He's been speaking since the time of Abraham for over 400 years that he's going to give this land to the children of Israel, but he is not going to give it to them until the iniquity and the sin of the people in the land becomes so great that he is forced by necessity of his own holiness and righteousness to force them out. This isn't just God, you know, looking at a map and let's see, where will I put them? Boom. These people needed for the good of mankind to be displaced from this great place of influence in the world. The, the land of Israel is smaller than New Jersey. It's smaller than uh, many of the counties in California, just a little tiny thing. But you got three continents of the world that tie to that one piece of land. It is very, very influential real estate. A lot of traffic rolled north, south, east, and west through Israel. And he wanted that piece of land to be a place that would be an influence for godliness. So God says, don't, I don't want you going go in there and dispossessing these people under your own authority. I want you to go in and do it because I am telling you to do that. And, and so, so he, he, he does it. Listen, this is God's world. And he can do whatever he wants with it. Anything he chooses to do. With any piece of the land, he can put whoever he wants in it, have it be for whatever it's his purposes. Man is only renting here. At best, long-term lease. We're only renting here. So, what if you had, if the renters are trashing the place and they're doing all kinds of wickedness and, and, and ungodly, vile things that violate the, the, the righteous convictions of the owner? Well, we give a, a, a renter, a, a landlord, the, the privilege of being able to get that kind of tenant out of there. And that's what God is doing with the Canaanites. He's saying, like, this is my land. They're trashing the place. They're doing stuff that's an abomination in my eyes. I'm going to get them out of here and I'm going to move some proper tenants in. And he's free to do that. And, and that's exactly what, what he, he does. And you shall divide, verse 54. So here's how the land was to be divided among uh, the, the tribes, the nine and a half tribes that were going to uh, possess that part of the land. You shall divide the land by lot as an inheritance among your families. To the larger you shall give a larger inheritance, and to the smaller you shall give a smaller uh, inheritance. Then there, everyone's inheritance shall be whatever falls to him by lot. You shall inherit according to the tribes of your fathers. And so he, he says the larger tribes are going to get larger, larger numerically, are going to get a larger piece of land. The smaller tribes get a smaller piece of land so that each family within the tribe 
will end up with about the same amount of, of land. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you. He says, you don't take me seriously about driving these people out and, and making mincemeat out of their uh, things that they worship. If you don't drive the inhabitants of the land out from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes. You ever get something in your eye? Oh, man. It's an irritant, isn't it? Thorns in your side? I don't even talk about that. And they will harass you in the land where you dwell. Moreover, it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. And so he said, if you don't take, get these people out of there and you don't, you know, make, just crush everything that, that they worship, then these people and what they worship are just going to be a constant source of trouble to you. They're going to make your life miserable. Spiritually, they're going to make your life miserable uh, uh, physically. And so he says, get rid of them. You think about, I mean, this, allow it to search our hearts tonight. How many of us here, if there are any of us here tonight, where we are maintaining relationships in our life that God has told us should have no part in our life, or we have in our homes or in our whatever things that are forbidden by God. They are the things that the world worships, but he tells us we are not to worship those things. Now what do those, what do those relationships and those things do in your spiritual walk? They make you miserable. They are a constant irritation. They are a constant temptation. They are a constant fight. It's a constant battle that God wants us to be freed of. So he said, get rid of them, get it out of the way, and then you don't have to be messing with any of this stuff. And I really like verse 56. He said, moreover it shall be that I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So he says, you go into that land, and you get wicked like them, and you start worshiping what they're doing, don't think... Don't think that I will treat you differently simply because you're my people. Because right is right and wrong is wrong and I'm a righteous God and I'm a holy God and if you do what they're doing and then you say, well, God doesn't mind because I'm a Christian, he says, you'll find out real quick, I do mind, and you'll find yourself out of the land and, and, and messed up. And so we're not any different because we're saved in terms of what evil associations and sin wants to do in our life. I'm a Christian, and so evil associations, they don't affect me. It doesn't work that way. I'm a Christian, and so the wickedness of the world has no effect on me. Well, that's laughable, isn't it? Uh, it'll do, it will do to us in terms of making our life miserable and then forcing even the discipline and chastening of God upon us as, as much as it would for anyone else. And so there's just, he's bringing in real sobriety there related to that. Because sometimes people can think, well, you know, I'm different. I'm a Christian. I can do this and God will just forgive me and it won't be any kind of big deal. Well, you can for sure one thing that's going to happen is you, you, he'll drive, we'll be driven out of the promised land by those things. In other words, a person that's engaged in those kind of relationships and that kind of sin is no longer possessing the promises of God and growing in their relationship with the Lord. 
So it costs us something that's even more valuable than it would have cost them in land because what is given to us spiritually is not just blood bought, it is the blood of Jesus Christ bought. And so the importance, as he, as he speaks here and says, don't think that you're some odd egg here and that, that it, it, it'll have a different end for you. Stay away from all this junk. So we'll stop there uh, tonight and we'll look, Lord willing, uh, to, if we're all around, finish these last three chapters um, next week. I'm 